I'm extremely excited for today's conversation. I'm speaking to Paul Rosalie, who spent the last few years of his life living and working in the Peruvian Amazon. By the age of 30, he's worked and lived there for several years, been on several solo expeditions into uncharted parts of the western rainforest, discovered the new floating forest habitat, grappled with 60-inch circumference anacondas, presented a program on the Discovery Channel in the US that's been watched by millions of people, and published The Incredible Mother of God about his time there. And that is one of my favourite conservation books that I've ever read. So, I really recommend going out there and buying his book, but also I hope that you enjoy our conversation. And this conversation is part of the Wild Voices Project podcast, which tells the stories of the people like Paul who are saving nature. We're part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org and learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Okay, let's dive in. This one is really exciting. I think that's working. Right, that's working. Great. Sorry. <laughs> no, all good. All good. Cool. So, um, how's your day going? <laughs> pretty good. Um, it's just turning into the fall here, so it's looking pretty beautiful upstate. Do you guys get like some autumn colors in the UK? Yeah, You're in the UK. Right? Yeah, I'm in the UK. Yeah, we get we get some nice autumn color. It's pretty cold here at the moment. Uh, yeah. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So, you in New York City or just in New York State? No, I live upstate. I can't live in a city, man. I, I, I go nuts after two days. I need trees. I need to hear coyotes at night. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. I know what you mean. I've tried living in cities. It doesn't really work out for me. No. Cool. Okay. Um, so have you got any more questions before we, before we get started? Uh, no. How long do we go? Usually. Um, like an hour, roughly, if that's okay? Yeah, that's fine. Have you got that much time? Yeah, I do. Cool. Okay. Great. Um, well, thank, thanks very much for taking the time to do this, and it's a it's a real kind of honour to speak to you, particularly after having read your book a couple of years ago. Um, oh, thank you, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've hit back and forth on, on a few things now, so it's it's definitely good to finally hear you in real time. Yeah, and you helped out with the Vision for Nature report, which was which was really great, great as well. Thank you for doing that. Um, of course. Of course. Cool. So. Um, I'm going to just dive into dive into the questions that I've got, and I've got a lot, so I suspect we probably won't get through them all, but um, let's just see how we get on. But um, you say that you're in upstate New York at the moment, so I was just wondering how how you now divide your time between the US, which is your home, and between Peru, which you've made your home, and maybe between India as well, where I know you've spent some time. Yeah. Yeah, I try, I try and I try and do it in big blocks because you know you don't want I don't want to be flying all the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's when I have I try and arrange all my projects and research in Peru so that I go down there and then for half a year or so I'll be down there doing doing projects, anaconda research, guiding trips, um, photography stuff, documentaries, whatever I'm doing, I'll be doing down there, and then. You know, depend depending on on what the schedule's like. You know, I have I have my projects in India and family in India, so we, me and my wife, spend some time there. And but you know, New York is where I'm from, so it's always sort of like the the nucleus. I'm always sort of orbiting around New York in one way or another. And uh, we, you know, when it comes time to to get projects out, when you spend six months filming in the forest or 
you, you come back to, you know, plan a new expedition. It's, it always seems like I end up in New York to do that stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't really live anywhere anymore. You know, I, I kind of, and, and I also don't travel, you know, when people say, oh, you got to come to, to, you know, I have friends that are like professional travelers and they're like, oh, you got to go to Thailand. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. But, um, I kind of got my plate full and I really don't want to, you know, take my, take my eyes off the prize in terms of, uh, the projects that I have running. So, so yeah, we just juggle a triangle life and, uh, and try and do the best we can. <laughs> it's a pretty good playful to have, huh? <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it it like I said, it's a juggling act, but it's it's fun. And so New York, um, I guess, is useful because you. It seems to me like you've built up a bit of a network of kind of maybe academics and people who are supporting your projects over time. There, right? Well, um, I don't I don't know if I'd put it like that. It's just it's just that you know I feel like um, New York is mecca. Everyone comes to New York, so. Mm. You know, if uh, if I want to if I want to meet someone from a from a conservation organization, chances are they're going to be in New York at some point. Whereas their chances of being in Bangalore, India, are you know usually pretty slim. Um, but yeah, it's it's more just you know being in the connected world and and having a steady internet connection and uh, you know be just being a, in an environment where you can work and network with people and stuff. You know, where I'm, when I'm when I'm out in 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 the Amazon, I, it's always tough because, you know, when you're publishing a book or something or even working on a film or anything, you, you go there and you say, okay guys, well, I'll be back in touch in about six weeks. So, you know, whatever input, you know, if the people running a project need your input on something, well, they're just not going to get it and the, the project's just going to stall. So when I'm in the field, sometimes things take, sometimes I really sort of fall behind on my responsibilities. So, I just come home and stay super connected for a few months and try and work like triple the amount that I should and then head back out into the wild. Right. So it must take a bit of planning of kind of, you know, this six week block or this six month block, I'm going to do this, this, this. And then, you know, there's kind of a, a very finite or fixed deadline on it because once you're disconnected, you're properly disconnected again. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and that's the, that's the, that's the end goal of course, is that I want to be disconnected. I want to be out there, man, you know, and when I am disconnected, man, it just makes me smile so much to be, walking barefoot through the jungle or swimming or you know and just and just say you know what <laughs> i don't care <laughs> so it's a much it's a much happier place for you being in being in the jungle than it is being well being in the city or even than potentially being in you know upstate new york yeah i mean i just i just think that we all today like everyone is it always shocks me when i come out of um the the wilderness and everyone is so busy you know, and I, I get very busy right away, too, with, you know, trying to do all these projects. But what I want to do is is be out there and, sh you know, show people cool things or, or, or learn about a new species. Um, but but somehow in, in today, everyone's so busy. It's like, you know, we have these pocket computers and, you know, there's like I, I, I got rid of uh, I recently got rid of my my SIM card and my cell phone. So I don't have a cell phone anymore. Mm. Um, because I found that when I came home, it was like, I would be like, Hey, what's up to my friends. And then I would have hundreds of text messages every day. Um, and I was just like, I, I don't, I, I can't do that. So I just, I liked, I like it to be really simple and, and straightforward. Like, like the way it is in the jungle. Yeah. You bring some of that back home with you. Yeah, for sure. Changes you. Yeah.
Um, so, so I don't know how long you've been back from from being in Peru, but I was wondering what kind of what what it is you've been doing for the past few months, and what like in particular if there's anything you've been working on that's fresh or new, or that you've been enjoying for the past few months. Well, um, this spring I had two different study abroad groups, and we had we're continuing our anaconda research, which has been going on for years now. Um, so that's the stuff that I'm really excited about. I mean, we we're, we have students coming from all over the world to the jungle now, and they're helping us to protect this river. And the river I work on is, you know, the 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 mouth of the river up, and then somewhat up from the mouth of the river is is pretty deforested, and there's there's settlers and there's farmland cleared. But as you go further up this river, you're in the headwaters of the Amazon, and it, it drops off or, or the human presence drops off and you end up just in, in deep green untouched jungle. And, and sure there's, you know, there's the, the scattered indigenous community. And, and as you go up, there'll be one or two logging boats per week or something. But for the most part, it's just, you're just completely out in this wilderness. And, uh, the work that we do down there is pretty much centered on protecting this river because it's such a big river. There's so much wilderness. It sits in between three national parks or, or, or several protected areas, Alto Purus National Park, Manu National Park, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, mm-hmm. and the Tambopata Reserve, which are all very, very famous parts of the Peruvian Madre de Dios. And so if we can pr- protect the Las Piedras River, which runs through the middle of it, all those protected areas will be protected, um, you know, or connected, sorry. And, and that, that's what you want. Because if you have protected areas with no connectivity, then you've just created islands. Um, and, and it's really sort of an antiquated way of thinking to think that you can just sort of stick a fence up around a forest and say, okay, boom, it's protected, done. Uh-huh. It's not just about the trees, the, you know, the... You know, for instance, in India, you see a lot with the, you know, elephants migrate across huge distances and they're carrying seeds and they're gardening the forest. And it's like you can't just throw up a fence. And in the Amazon, it's the same thing. We have, you know, troops of monkeys that are moving through these areas and, you know, you have tapers that can, I I believe that a taper can transport over 80 different species of seeds. They eat the fruit off the the jungle floor. And, and then they're, when they, when they poop, they're, they're, they're gardening. They're creating the forests, and then of course the fruit bats and the monkeys and the birds and the tapers—they're all contributing to that. So if you don't have contiguous forests, you're messing up how the Amazon replenishes itself. And of course, if you have mess up how the Amazon replenishes itself, you get into messing up how our planet functions, and you don't want to do that. But um, but yeah, it's really amazing sharing this river with students, and we we've had elderly people and students, and uh, and we also are sharing the river with. The tribes. I mean, we have on this river up further upstream, just a few hours from us, there are un well, we call, you know, the com they're commonly called uncontacted tribes, but the you know, the more the more accurate name for them now is isolated, voluntarily isolated tribes. And they're these are people that have been out there for hundreds and hundreds of years living in the jungle without clothing, without modern, without metal. They've never seen a spoon. Mm-hmm. They've never seen the wheel. Um, most of them never seen a road. So like all these things that we take for granted, um, written language, all that stuff, they don't have. These are incredibly, incredibly different people. And I'm intentionally not saying the word primitive because they're not primitive. They're modern people. Um, 
who were who were living very complex lives in in a place that would kill most of us. Um, and they're doing it without even clothes on, so or without shoes on. So it's it's pretty incredible. And uh, and and they also can't sort of um, advocate for themselves. So they're out there in this huge wilderness. And you know, if a, if a mining company comes in and says we're going to buy up this entire part of Peru and clear cut it, these people can't throw on a suit and go to Parliament and start a rally and a GoFundMe and all this stuff. They they're just they won't even know it's happening until it happens, and they won't understand what it is. So it, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. And you write in your in your book, which we'll come to a bit more in in a little while, about um, you know when you when people talk about big national parks putting up a fence around a bit of forest, you don't have to think of that as a place where there are absolutely zero people. In fact, some of these um, some of these people, some of these tribes, can be key parts of a functioning protected area that's good for wildlife and for them as well. Yeah. Oh, of course. And I mean that's. You know, I think that's something that I learned, you know, I don't know, some, somewhere along the way when I was just getting into college, maybe I, I sort of thought like, yeah, I want like deep, pristine wilderness. And I think we all have this neat, very, very spiritual sort of natural need for that. Um, you know, and then and then when you fly over the world and you see or, or even just go on Google Google Earth on the satellite view and see that how much of this planet is just covered in us. It's disgusting. Mm. Like it's, it actually causes me great strife. I have stress dreams about it sometimes because I just don't think it's right. Um, but when we come to nature, we're like, oh, we want pristine, beautiful nature. And a lot of people think that that's mutually exclusive to having any kind of human presence there. But, but that's not the case at all. I mean, you can have um, – I mean, that's what actually you want people to be living there because there inevitably are going to be people living on the fringes of these protected areas. So, um, you know, in, in Africa, you, the people that are living on the edges of wildlife preserves and wildlife preserves are the ones who know how to. You know, they, they, they probably still interact with the wildlife, whether they're collecting firewood or, or you know, cultivating bees or so, some small crops or their livestock grazes inside the same area. Um, and we, we now, you know, now we all call that buffer zones. Those are, those are areas where the humans and, and the wildlife sort of interact in a limited way, which is, which is the way it always is. And, and I had a professor in college who <laughs> we used to fight because I was obsessed with wilderness and he said wilderness wasn't a thing. Mm. And he would say, no, wilderness is a modern con construct, you know, and, and I hated, hated that. And I hated when he said that. Um, but as I got older, I understood what he was trying to say, and what he was trying to say is that there is no wilderness because we're not we're not separate from nature. We're you know the the modern view that we we are these these weird like termites, like some sort of hive, and we live in a city, and then oh, out there is this other wilderness. No, 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 no. He was saying that in in from his view, and he was very centered with indigenous sort of worldview. He was saying that you know. It's just the world is the world, and sure, there, there. What I think the thing that we were disagreeing on is that sure, there's areas that are gonna be uninhabited and run by nature, that, and then there always should be. Um, but I think what I didn't know in the early days was just how much um, conservation has come up against indigenous people, and I think that that's like completely tragic and Shakespearean in that, you know the the forest and the people who live in the forest and, and the wildlife, I mean, that's, that's all, they all should be on the same team. 
um, especially given the the scope and size of the threats facing them, all the, the mining companies and oil companies and developments and all this stuff that wants these forest resources and water. Um, you know, you you would want the conservationists and the local people to be on the same team, mm. but what we're seeing or what I've, what we've been seeing for at least many, many years now is all these horrible stories where, you know, you hear, Oh, this is being set up as a tiger reserve in South India. And then they kick out the tribal people. And then these people have nowhere to go, no sort of setup or, 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 you know, foundation and how to, how to interact with the modern world. And they end up pretty much just, you know, falling apart. It's really brutal. And, and that makes then, the people that are in like survival international and the people that are into like social justice for indigenous people are against the conservationists, which mm. is, which is so devastating because in industry, everyone's making money. They're like, Hey, should we build this new dam? Yeah. Let's call up the guys who make roads. Sweet. Everyone has drinks. They clink glasses and it's a big money making party. And then on the other side in the forest stuff, you know, the conservationists are fighting the, the, the people in, involved with the indigenous people and then everyone falls apart instead of being united. So it's like that needs to go. And instead of, you know, the answer to that is just make bigger spaces that where you can have wildlife and people and, and it's not a problem. It's just, it's a, uh, and of course there's, there's far more complex problems that we've, that we've overcome in our, our societies. It's just, this is just a, it's just, it's just a, a question of how you think of it. It's a question of beliefs, I guess. Yeah, and the wrong people end up fighting each other as opposed to the real threats that are out there, like you know, like the bad developments, like the road construction, like the like the mining. Um, yeah, it just exactly. leads to infighting amongst the people who should be united and kind of forming a common front. Yeah, and that's why that's why it's so sad to watch. Um, but I but I, I think that that's that's also very. I'm very very happy to say that I think that that's sort of in another ten years that'll be a thing of the past because mm. now. Um, whether it's in India or, I mean, Peru is, that's the one thing. Peru is really cool with that. Peru is like an innovator with that. Like their, their protected areas have always included indigenous people. And I think because the Amazon is so vast, um, when you, when you create something like Alto Purus, which I, I think is like 10,000 square miles, it's like three times the size of Yellowstone. It's absolutely monstrous. Yeah. And, um, when you create something like that, it's like, oh, yeah, there's a few indigenous communities in here, like one, two, three. How many of the people is that? That's like 500 people. That's like zero, zero point one person, per, you know, per, per, per square kilometer. It, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And it's, it's the way it's always been. And, um, you know, that they're, they're absolutely not hurting the ecosystem. So anybody that would throw them out is just misinformed or, you know, has, has a different agenda. So in Africa and stuff, or India, where, where the, you know, the, where it's a little different, like for instance in India, the the problem is that there's there's only so much forest left, and it really is like an island. Like around the forest, there is nothing. It's been cleared. It's like turned into arid scrub and farmland. So those tribal people and the animals are literally like, you know, you think of like your own house. It's like it's like the tigers and the elephants and the people are all like trying to divide up rooms and be like, this is mine. That's yours. No, I, I deserve the whole house. And it's like, it shouldn't be like that. You just need to be, you know, big, build a bigger house, let the forest grow. Mm -hmm. So, 
So we, we, we've dived straight into um, kind of <laughs> the Amazon and stuff, which, and, you know, um, wildlife and people, and, and that's great. But I wanted to, um, wanted to kind of rewind a little bit as well. Um, and you've loved wildlife since you, were, since you were quite young, but I wondered where, you know, I can't remember whether it was in Mother of God or elsewhere I read about you kind of, you know, learning how to handle snakes from quite a long, young age. I was wondering yeah. where that love of wildlife came from. Um, I can, I've done, well, we've all done in my family, we've all done a good bit of questioning on this. Cause when I was young, they were like, what is wrong with this kid? <laughs> um, I'm from, I'm from Brooklyn. All right. So you're, when you're a little kid, you're like, I want to be a baseball player. I want to be, you know, that's, I actually remember being with my cousins and my cousin was like, Oh, I'm going to play for the Yankees. You know, we we're like six years old. And he's like, I'm going to play for the Yankees. And one of my big uncles, you know, a World War II vet, you know, Paul Lee, what do you want to be? And I was like, I'm going to be a naturalist. And you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of true. I mean, you know, I just uh, I don't know. I, I think my according to my parents, I was always just, you know, as a toddler, I was like obsessed with dinosaurs. And I would always like, you know, sort of scream and make them take me toward towards anything to do with animals. I grew up, you know lying on my dogs and and you know just just craving animal interaction um and then as soon as as soon as i was old enough that you know I'd, I'd, they'd be like you know do you want to go to the park no i want to go to the woods you know and that i, I didn't want to just go to see grass i didn't want to play a game with a ball i wanted to be in the woods i wanted to follow a stream i wanted to look for turtles and frogs and stuff and you know i mean the first i remember the first time i saw I mean, I, I remember pretty far back. I remember to when I was like three years old. So um, I actually remember the time in my life before I had ever seen a snake. And I, it was like I read about, you know, I read kids' books and I'd seen them on TV. And I was like, God, I really hope one day I get to see one of these things. And it was there was just so much wonder about it. And then um, I went to a Waldorf school as a kid. And one day we were like coming back through the woods and I saw this like, turquoise blue garter snake the most beautiful thing ever and it was just gliding across the leaves and i just i was like com completely in love with this thing i was like this is amazing um but yeah it's it's been hawks snakes following foxes tracking bears i mean i just i spent my my childhood and early teens just obsessed with animals and um you know i then when i got to be like 12 years old i'd go out in the woods with just like my dog and a hunting knife and, uh, you know, no tent and like one match just to make it interesting. And then like <laughs> camp out for like two days and just like, I'd have to build shelter and then start a fire with one match. And if I messed it up, I didn't have fire. Right. Kind uh, of pushing your own limits. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and of course I'm doing this in like, you know, little, little, little nature reserves where like, you know, there's a thing called Harriman state park and another one called Ramapo reservation they're only about 35, 40 miles outside of New York City. So when you get up to the top of the mountains, you feel like you're in the wilderness, but you can actually just see the outline of New York City on the on the very, very end of the horizon. Mm. So it's uh, it was like literally in the shadow of the city. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, it, it, nature versus nurture. It was nature, man. My my parents weren't. You know, they were just like, all right, I don't know why, but this kid needs animals. <laughs> like, but it's great that they were supportive of that and you know encouraged oh. it in you right yeah super supportive i mean i know my mom i think one time they like they like found a turtle in a stream somewhere and i wasn't there and they like 
they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to like plant this. And they like took me out to the woods and then they like put the turtle on a rock so that it, cause it was a baby turtle. It wasn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And like, I thought that I found, I don't remember this, but they said that I thought I found the turtle and it was like the best day of my life. Like I was just so thrilled. Um, you know, and then you, you put on some goggles and you get in the stream and you swim next to it and stuff. It's just, it's just so much fun seeing how these things live. And, um, yeah, that hasn't gone away at all. <laughs> so I, I was just interested, you said you went to a Waldorf school and I don't know what that is, but I know from obviously reading Mother of God that you've had a kind of, uh, a mixed relationship just with the education system in general. Yeah. Um, well, uh, mixed is even too optimistic. I would say I've had a terrible <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'm being too British and diplomatic, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hated every minute of school. Yeah. Um, I remember in first grade being like, if I walked out, and I was smart enough, you know, I was like, I was like, if I walked out, I was like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I was like, I'm going to get yelled at. And I was like, I know the way home. I was like, I could do it. And I was like, so miserable, so, so miserable. And I'm severely dyslexic, so I, I could not. I didn't think I learned to read until like third grade. I just couldn't do it. And I was super, super embarrassed that I couldn't do it. And that then like my D's and B's would be backwards. And that like simple multiplication, five times five, I'd be like, I just don't know. Um, so school was like humiliating and hard and I just hated sitting still. And I remember one time there was like, there was an assignment about like, and this is again in first grade, they were like, you know, um, you know, your, your, your parents are away and you have to survive. So like, what are you going to survive on? And all these kids were like, you know, pizza and Twinkies and soda. And I was like, no, nah, man, if my parents are away, I'd, I'd probably end up in the woods. And so I wrote about like the deer I was going to hunt and stuff. And they were like, you didn't understand the project. Um, but it was, I was always, I was always just coming at it from the wrong direction. But, um, so yeah, I, I tried public school in the U S that didn't work. They put, stuck me into Catholic school, which I think lasted about two weeks. That didn't last long at all. Cause just didn't, they really, they, I think they were even more strict there. And then, so I did first grade again in a Waldorf school, which is like, they follow the, uh, the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. And it's, it's very like. I actually don't feel like I'm sort of authorized to tell you what it's like, but it's it's just it's just a different type of education. They believe in very being sort of unplugged from technology, and um, they encouraged the parents not to like let their kids watch TV. They we spent a lot of I think there were like three or four recesses a day, right? Where they like they really felt like playtime was important for kids, not just like a wasted period. Um, it was like no, go outside, rain, sh- snow, sh- sunshine, whatever, go outside. Um, build snow forts. Like, you know, if it's raining out, put on your rain gear and go build dams where the, where the water makes little streams. Like, so like we had a fun time at that and I did that from first to third grade and then eventually that stopped working. So I went back to the public school system and then, uh, hated it. Like, and I mean, seriously hated it. Like no joke. Middle school was some dark days, got suspended and all kinds of things. Um, and then by high school, I started, you know, it's a little more, you're big enough in high school to, to do damage with a punch and you're angry enough to make some serious life decisions. Um, so my parents were just like, yo, I mean, I give them so much credit. They were like, look, um, you don't have to do two more years of high school. You know, I was, I was failing. I just said, I'm not doing this. I said, you can keep my body in class, but some of the assignments were so stupid and they, they, they'd stop me from reading books in class. Like, and I was like, look, if you, if you want to fail me, fine, but just let me read in school. Um, and so, yeah, they said, look, my, my parents said, we will totally be happy with it. If you take your high school equivalency tests, which 
in three hours you can take take a test that says you don't have to do two more years of high school. Uh. Um, so I did that and started going to college. I just started taking classes at, at a local, you know, state school and and then got matriculated and got signed on and, and did my undergrad at Brown Pole College in New Jersey. But that really saved my life was not having to do two more years of high school. And actually a friend I know who is a photographer and works with Nat Geo and he's kind of similar to me. He, uh, he, he just told me that he left school after middle school. So I think moving forward, I think that we have a very old and outdated education system. And I think that more and more we're realizing that kids, first of all, are much healthier when you let them outside, much healthier when you let them learn for themselves. And I think that, you know, that sort of, I guess it's like a 1920s idea of sitting kids down in neat little rows and spewing information at them and then make, making them go home and do exercises about it and then come back and be tested on it. I just don't see it. I think a lot of kids by very early ages are like, Hey man, I can, I can do anything with this guitar. You know, I can, you know, kids who just excel and love math or, you know, whatever. I just think that the education is going to change very, 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 very steeply in the coming years. Yeah. One of my best friends is, um, is an amazing wildlife photographer. He spent some time in Manu, actually, and um, dropped out of school basically as soon as he could. Um, well, not quite as soon as he could, but at the age of 18. But um, talk, talks about how, you know, in, <laughs> he'd, he'd do his school day, but around it he'd fit in like, you know, five, six hours of practicing photography for the final three or four years yeah. and then just yeah. left as soon as he could. And, you know, he... He doesn't need it. Yeah. He's got the photography and he's taught himself. And that's that's what he's making a huge success of right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how many, I mean, you know, then they always tell you about like, you know, Einstein was bad in school and Bill Gates didn't go to college. They always yeah. tell you all these like, you know, things. But, you know, it's true. I think the system works for some people. Um, they go to school and they're like, you know what? I totally understand this game uh, and how to excel at it. And they, they do good and it works for them and they get, they get degrees and, and it really can help them. So I, I definitely think I definitely see that side of it, but I'm just one of the kids that didn't, it didn't work for. <laughs> and, uh, actually when I was in college, I did a, I did a study abroad in the Atlantic forest of Brazil with Columbia university. And I remember I was doing good and I just remember learning so much because every day we'd have classroom time where they'd talk to us about the ecology and then we'd go out in the field and do it, you know, and like, so it was right there. It was from the textbook to like, to like, to real experience. And there's no reason that you can't do that. Whether you're in the, you know, in the Bronx in New York city and London, it doesn't matter if you're in the city or in the, in the, in the country, you can still, you know, sort of show kids the real world version of whatever it is you're teaching, um, by inviting experts in or taking them out on field trips. And I think that, I think that for me, that was the thing It's like, I had to actually experience it. Mm. Which is what you went and did. Um, and again, I want to talk about that in a bit more detail. I'm, I'm really interested though in, um, the journey from, you said you learned to read, at, um, a reasonably late age and you said you're dyslexic. Um, uh, what, what's been the journey from that to writing such an incredible <laughs> book that is one of the best books that I've ever read and who are some wow, of the writers thanks. who've, who've inspired you? Um, and what, what, also, what was the writing process like for you too? I'm really interested in that. Do you come back and sort of just spend six months head down just writing? How does that work for you too? Um, all right. Well, I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer it from the beginning. The yeah. So not learning, not knowing how to read. Actually, again, like you know, how how many times are our our bad luck is actually just like you know something cool working itself out in life. 
um, I was so dyslexic that like I really couldn't read. So what we what we would do is that before bed every night, my parents would read to us, to me and my sister. And so they read us like, you know, uh, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, which was my favorite. I think I made them read that one twice. Um, you know, and so we 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 I developed what happened was because I couldn't read. I I think that my language skills and developed a lot, mm-hmm. and so my auditory learning and my my sort of just like my sense of. I guess English and and sentence structure and story structure, I guess all got sort of filled in there. You know, and then later on I figured out how to read. I still don't know what an adverb is, but but, uh, but I know how to, you know, I I I read You know a how lot. to use one. <laughs> I know how to use one. That's the thing. That's the important thing. Yeah. Um but uh so yeah, I mean we just I grew up being read to a lot and then and then, you know, during your teenage years nobody does anything really productive. But then once I once I got out of te- my teens, I, I I read a lot. I read a hell of a lot, and I I look up to you know I read you know everything. I just read everything. I read Jane, Jane Goodall's books and you know all the different adventures and the and the the nonfiction cool stuff about what's going on in the world. I love nonfiction, um, and I love what people can do with it and how how incredibly beautiful some of the writing is. I just read the uh, there was this book called The Emerald Mile about the uh the people that ran the 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 Grand Canyon they did raft they they rode boats down the rivers in the Grand Canyon it was just incredible um there's a book called The Tiger by a Canadian author John something and like that just mind blowing book um and it's just so much fun that these people take these stories that are that are true and you know put it down in a book so that, so that we can so we can sort of run in the snow next to them and them and their tiny Siberian tigers um and so yeah, I never um once I started working in the Amazon, I never sort of ever thought about it, but I did I did know that a lot of the people I looked up to seemed to keep journals, so I kept a journal. Um and I also would come back and again being from New York, you know, you come back from 3 months in the Amazon and people are like, you know, what is what are you crazy? What happened down there? And um I I just realized that people would react to the stories in in a way that made me want to t- want to tell them more like you know like i would tell people about the time that i you know okay so I, I started out as a teenager camping in the woods in new york great you know then i'm now i'm 21 years old and i'm i'm out in the jungle in the amazon and i'm lost as hell and it's day three and i'm dehydrated and i go to sleep and that's when that jaguar i was in my hammock in the middle of the jungle with no trails mm. And a jaguar comes up in the night and sniffs me so close that I could feel her breath on my ear. And then the craziest part of that wasn't this just that the jaguar did that, but it was that I had been so terrified before that that I was panicking and I forgot everything. I forgot I forgot my game face, I forgot my courage, I forgot why I was out there. And then after that happened, I was just like so full of awe and so so thankful that that happened to me that I was just laying there in the dark in the same jungle and everything was snapped back into focus. That Jaguar just sort of shook me and just sort of was like, Hey, you know, and then I was like, well, this is why I'm out here for exactly for stuff like that, that would, that you could never even imagine it happening. And then, and then it does. Um, and then I, you know, I got my shit together and the next day I, you know, calmly figured out how to, how to navigate out of there. And, 
that didn't help because I still got my I still got pretty roughed up by the jungle on that trip. But but I made it out and 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 it was it was fun. And when I tell people that, it was kind of fun hearing people be like, "No, I don't even believe that." And it's like, no, like you know, when you go out to these places, crazy stuff happens. And then I started writing it down just for fun, and then uh, showing it to different people and my family and my, my, these, I have two older cousins who've always been like super supportive and like, you know, I gave it to them and I was like, what do you think of this? And they were like, you should write a book. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, and then starts the, yeah, you were saying like, you know, is it, is it six months of head down? It was, it was a slower process than that. I wrote like, you know, four or five little chapters, like sort of stories that didn't have any connection or meaning. And I, I really had no idea what I was doing, you know, and then I sent it out to some, some publishers and they were like, look, kid, you're not ready. Um, but kind of like with school, what I wasn't ready for was I didn't have, you know, when you, when you write a book, you have to have, you have to have an arc to the book. There has to be like an overall thesis, you know, it can't just be like, Hey, here's some stories by this guy. Um, your, your, your thesis needs to be either something of, you know, your own personal discovery or telling the story of some, some event that happened. I was just like, Hey, jungle stuff, animals are awesome. Like, you know, so then, (laughs) and, and, and that's cool. Cause I was, you know, I was in my early twenties. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but then I, then I, I had the luck of, of, you know, some, some friends and family who were, you know, good with this stuff sort of said, look, let's, let's, let's find what your arc is. Let's find what the, the overall story here is. And then, you know, you go to the publishing world with that and then they say, okay, and now you have crazy stories with the environmental message and we can see that it's, it's going somewhere. And then you start, you start planning a book and then you start, you start reading a lot because you got to start seeing like, you know, like I know at the time I was reading, I said, like, okay, who do I who do I want to emulate? Like, who whose example do I want to follow? So I went straight to like John Krakauer because I love the way he writes nonfiction. I find like it, it's it's very simple. It's not overly descriptive. You know, he just tells you what you need to know, and then there's just you know there's those brief moments where you're like, oh my god, that was beautiful, and you got to just close the book and just like sit there and think about what you just read. But to me, he's a good balance of everything. And so, uh, yeah, you just start devouring books and at the same time trying out different things. And then I think part of the, one of the things that now as a, as a writer, and I'm finishing my second book now, um, like now I just sent it off, um, for the, for the first round of edits and like looking back, it's like, if you read like Hemingway, the guy just, he strips it down so simple that he's like, you know, the man picked up the pen. Whereas like, it's almost like the, to a, to a novice writer, it's like, you believe the opposite. You're like, I have to make this sound beautiful. It's like, so the man lifted the writing device, like, you know, fluorescently, like you'll make up these words and it's like, no, you don't need to do that. You just need to make it as simple as possible, clear and tell the truth, you know? And that's it. And so a lot of like learning to write was just like ripping, ripping all of that crap out of it. You know, it was like, you know, just trying just for me, it was just like telling people about the jungle in its simplest form. You know, what, what is this place? Because I think today, you know, however many billions of us there are on earth, half of the people on earth right now live in cities, mm. which, which to me, thank God they live in cities. Cause if they didn't, there'd be nothing left of the natural world. But at the same time, these are people that are voting. These are people that are making decisions. These are people that are rapidly losing all connection to nature. So, um, so that to me is, you know, it makes it important then for people to be able to pick up these books by, you know, John Krakauer or this book, the tiger or something, you know, these books from, from these wild places that tell you stories about things that, that, that happen like this. Cause I think people, uh, 
in the cities, you know, my, my city friends would tend to be more skeptical um, of an animal and of an animal's intelligence than people, because people that live in the country, they'll say, yeah, I've, I've seen a crow, you know, open my back door to get at, you know, my grain. Like that's, that's, of course they can do that. Whereas like, you know, a person in the city would be like, nah, there's no way a stupid animal could do that. And so, you know, I think for me, just really telling people like what the, what the, I mean, the Amazon is so incredible. Um, so I think that to me, my, my, my dream was really just to make people open that book and go, oh man, this is what the jungle's like. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very excited to hear there's going to be a second book. <laughs> That's one of the best bits out of what you just said. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what mother of God, your first book did for me was, um, you know, I, I think I read it when I'd just come back from spending a year in, in the Bornean rainforest and I'd been back, I don't know, a few months or something. Um, and it did two things. It just really kind of reconnected me with that experience. And I think one of the things about the way you write is that you just feel like you're walking alongside you. It's very in the moment. It's kind of, it's, it's so vicarious. You don't even really feel like it's vicarious. It makes you feel like you're there. Um, but also it kind of lit a fire under me and re-inspired my, you know, from an early age for me as well. I remember a lesson at primary school about the Amazon when I must have been about six or seven. And I went home that evening and I wrote off letters and um, to, to, you know, WWF and Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth asking to find out more about this thing called the environment. And uh, <laughs> what Mother of God did for me was kind of reawaken a little bit that, that kind of passion that I felt as a kid. Um, yeah. And, and I think people should basically just go and read the book, which is why I'm not focusing too much on the Amazon itself and the wildlife there. But I was wondering if there's kind of one one thing from Mother of God or maybe one one story from another time that really would convey to people about how incredible the wildlife and the the forest there is. Could you could you just like touch on that briefly for people? Oh God. Um one story to convey how incredible the wildlife of the Amazon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's, a that's a tough question. No, I, I actually though I mean it's a, it's it's hard to it really is hard because it, it, you sound like a raving lunatic. You sound like one of those guys on the side of the street that like you know has a has a piece of cardboard and it says like you know the judgment is coming and he's <laughs> screaming to everyone because you come back. I came back from the Amazon and I was like, you know, my friends would be like, how was your, how was your trip? And I was like, oh my god, you know, we'd wake up in the morning, we would pee on the beaches, and you know, and and then the, the salt, like all these insects come, and there's thousands of butterflies. There's yeah. four thousand species of butterflies in the Amazon, and then you have a butterfly vortex, a tornado, a flying rainbow tornado of butterflies, and it's like that's just from your pee, and then you go <laughs> walking, and it's like you know, it's just it's magical. It's like it's like Avatar, and um, no, I mean, in a single day we. So we've seen, I mean, just this spring, we've, we had some incredible days, man. I went on a, me and some friends were pack rafting down a stream at night and we had with our headlamps, it was raining and we're going down this stream at night. And we were saying it was like, it was like a very, very adult and terrifying Disney ride. Like you're on this pack raft going down this stream and there were like dozens of crocodiles, small crocodiles, forest crocodiles called Cayman on the sides of this stream. And it's in the rain, and we just have our headlamps. And as we're going down the stream, these crocodiles are going into. We're scaring them. You know, they're getting scared by us as we're coming as we're coming through. And they're 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 jumping into the water, 
But then as they're jumping into the water, they're scaring the fish and the stingrays. So underneath our rafts, and there's just a piece of fabric, there's all these fish going by and they're hitting into our legs and our butts. And and there's, we see these huge, huge stingrays just, just flying by us under the water. And there's only, you know, a, a few centimeters of water. It's really a, a tiny, tiny stream. But it's like there's owls looking down at us and there's jaguar prints around us and there's just crocodiles and stingrays and all these things moving and you know at one point we came around the bend and there's a taper there it's like there's just there's just animals everywhere and there's giant trees with smaller trees growing on them with vines growing on that and bromeliads coming out of them i mean it's just i mean to people that haven't been to the jungle i think it sounds like a very uh unrealistic place because it's just it's just there's just so much life everywhere you can just sit down in the jungle look around you and be entertained for hours and you've done you've done some of those expeditions with people, but you've also done some like serious solo stuff. And I'm just wondering, what is it that motivated you to kind of go and explore, you know, bits where people have have essentially not been on your own? What drove you to take that decision? Uh, what drove me for that was that I mean, I my intro to the Amazon was through uh, an indigenous group of people called the SAEHA and my my close friend and business partner JJ we his family are fr- are of that community and so i sort of got educated by going out with them on hunting trips and you know we'd go out and some of them some of them were you know these guys would be like hey look we're going to go collect brazil nuts for a week way out in the jungle do you want to come and i'd be like sure and then other times you know they they they'd want to go hunting or and then, and then as time progressed though, I'd be like, you know, guys, what I really want to do is I, I'd love to go. I haven't, I've never seen an anaconda. Can we go, can we go see an anaconda? And, and they would take me out and we'd, you know, when you're out with these guys, you start listening to their stories. And this is like, this is where, this is why I like your, your journal becomes your most important thing because you start hearing stories about, you know, they start, they start talking around the campfire and it's like, yeah, I remember a few years ago when we, we were on that trail and we saw an anaconda that was eating a taper and you're going, wait a second. A taper is like a, can be a 500 pound animal. This is a cow. And they're like, yeah, well we saw this anaconda and he's eating this taper. <laughs> they're telling you this story and, and you can, you know, of course it's real. They're laughing about it. They're remembering it. And you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. I got to I got to write this down. And then you're like, where was that? And they're like, Oh, that, that one, that was a weird expedition. Cause we went way, way out there. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then, like, the next day, they're telling a story, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, one time we saw the uncontacted tribes, and they were trying to, I think they they wanted our machetes, so they were, like, shouting at us from the other side of the river, but they all had bows and arrows, so they, so we were scared to go near them, and I was like, oh, okay, cool, where was that? And they're like, oh, that was that, you know, that was, we were way out there, and I was like, okay, cool. And you keep hearing these stories, and the end of all the really good stories is, well, we were way the hell out there, you know, and, and then you, I asked them you know, well, what, what is, what's the deal with out there? And they would be like, well, the way they put it to me was, you know, all these PhD candidates, these students come down there, come down to the jungle, whether it's in Borneo or Peru. And I think for the most part, I mean, most people today don't have the survival skills or the expeditionary grit to sort of really delve into a jungle. So what you end up doing is you go to these established research sites. So you go to a place that has a house and trails and, and a staff and you have cooks and you know, you're, you're, it's awesome. And you're in the jungle, 
but you're you're in a somewhat domesticated environment in the jungle mm. uh, and so when you're there you know the wildlife is a little different the jaguars might stick to only coming out at night you know it's just it's just a little different it's just a little different um and there's this just this weird law with jungles and wilderness i mean I guess the same would go for Alaska, but it's like the farther away from people you get, there's a strange sort of magic that settles over the land. And like uh, in the Amazon, that's a really powerful thing. And when you when you get past the, you know, the city and then you, you take a boat for three days and you get to a little little community and then you say, well, what's past here? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, the crazy guy that we that we kind of know, he, he lives, you know, five miles up from here. You get to his house and then you say, hey, man, I'm looking for someone to take me to the end. I want to go to where the, where the boat hits ground and we can't go further up this river. And then when he looks at you and goes, man, there is no way you want to do that. You don't know what you're talking about. You crazy gringo. You're going to die. Um, you got to kind of just be like, yeah, well, that's exactly what I want. And and you got to hang out with him. And, you know, the cool thing about growing and learning with uh, – the essay, how was it? You know, I learned there's there's sort of local take on things. Like they have, you know, different local like, you know, like we'll say like a, a chicken in America we say a chicken does cockadoodle do. Like in France it's something different. Like for these guys, they don't call the bird hawatsen hawatsen. They call it shansho. They call it a different word. So I go would go to the, the this last guy, the only person on earth who could take you up this river and, and he'd go, Come on, you're just a crazy gringo. You don't know and I'd be like, Oh, come on. And I'd be like, I know that I can't eat Shancho because they're um, they're they're terrible meat. Everyone knows you can't eat them there. But you you prove to them that you have that local knowledge and you sort of hang out with them a little bit. You exchange some exchange some stuff and uh you, you get you convince them that you're not just, you know, on a suicide mission and then you, you get out there. And that's what I did. And I did that because I felt like I love the jungle um, in such a way and at such a level that I wanted to strip away everything else and just be like eye to eye with it. I just wanted to be completely lost in it and at its mercy. And so, yeah, you go. I went out. Um, I got dropped. And this is sort of ends up being sort of, I guess, the, the climax of, of my book, Mother of God, is it? You know, I, I got, and it's also sort of the climax of what I've done uh, in terms of expeditions. But I got dropped so far out there that you know the the they didn't really have names for the little tributaries that were up there. It was sort of past the places that had names, and uh, spent as long as I could there. I was supposed to spend three weeks there, but uh, things didn't didn't pan out the way I wanted to. But but what, what the way it was successful though was that for the time I spent out there. It's like a different planet. It's not. It's not even. You know, when I'm when I'm at, at the research station that I I run now. Um, you know, you go out to the river at night. You can jump in the water. There's there's no black caiman, and that's just because you know the occasional hunter or miner that might come on our river. The black caiman know to stay away from them. The black caiman know that this is sort of like a human human area. On this river, man, when I was camping, there were so many black came that I would turn my light on at night and there would just be hundreds of eyes, not hundreds, <laughs> dozens of eyes looking at me. Um, and it's just, it's just stuff like that, like these giant reptiles, you know, 16 foot long black caiman walking the beaches where it's like you just don't see that in the rest of the Madre de Dios. You don't see that um, commonly. 
and it's like out there all of a sudden you see it um usually a yellow-footed tortoise it's a it's a land tortoise that usually grows to be a little bit bigger than a rugby ball uh out there i saw one that was looked a lot more like a galapagos giant tortoise like it was it was about up to my knee and you know you say how old is this thing is this 120 years old is it 200 years old i don't i don't even know but what I do know is that in the human, in the human world, like where, where humans are going into the jungle, you would never see that because that would have ended up in the in the soup pot. Um, and so things are different, and all of those little things, the animals being slightly different, the trees being slightly bigger, um, it, it 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 comes it comes together to create a world that's very very different from one that we know or one that you can even access uh, easily by traveling to a place, and. Uh, it's just it's just it's just quite something i don't know i don't know how to say it and um i mean obviously like the wildlife is um just on a whole nother level but and that's something people don't normally experience but what's also what's happening like mentally when you spend that much time on your own in a place where you're that kind of vulnerable like that unless you have the survival skills what's the kind of internal monologue or dialogue that you have with yourself when you're doing a solo trip like that um, yeah, that's, that, that is, that is the, that is the question because, um, most people, and this only occurred to me when, once I did this, but once you're out there for a few days, you start thinking, you go, well, hell, I was born in a, chances are all of us, you know, were born in a hospital room where there were doctors and our mother and who God knows if there's family and other people. And then and then you came home and you went to school, whether you were in a classroom with people every day. And at night, you might have had a sibling in your room. And you just basically, we grow up and we're surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people our whole lives. We're, we really are quite the, the hive creature. Um, so it's super, actually feels super unnatural to be out there alone. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, just not talking to people, first of all, is weird. And I have a lot of friends that have done solos in various places and whether it's Alaska or, you know, other places. Um, and they, they all say that more than assuming, like you said, assuming that you have the bush skill and assuming that you know what you're getting into and you, 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 you know, you basically know how to survive. The thing that really gets you is just sort of this, like this weird gut level fear where you're just like, I haven't seen anyone in five days. This is weird. And it's just like, it starts getting really weird, really fast. Um, and of course the, then, you know, I've been out in Colorado and met guys and I've said, Hey, what are you doing up here? And the guy's got a big beard and go, oh, well, I've been camping next to this lake for three weeks. <laughs> it's like, all right, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, guys, a guy in his seventies just hanging out by a lake, um, for weeks on end, which, which to me feels different. Cause if you're, if you're hanging out by a lake in the Rockies, it's, it's beautiful and it's pretty simple. And I mean, Unless a unless you get like a crazy grizzly bear, like is nothing going to happen. The difference is that, and this is something that I've been sort of working on a lot lately, but that the trying to learn more about it. But the jungle is it's not so much just a place. The jungle is like a state of mind, and the jungle does things to your mind. And that's why Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness because the jungle is. I think the human mind just freaks out in the jungle. Like there's just something about all that life and all those noises and all that darkness that um, that just sends you climbing the walls. But there aren't any walls. Um, so, yeah, it just gets crazy. So, yeah, I, I just would talk to myself during the day and 
at night. The worst thing is at night because you get in your tent and you're like, all right, I'm in my tent. Um, and I, just to be clear, I was not scared of a single animal. Like I know that a jaguar is not going to bother me. Um, which that's it. That's, there's nothing that's going to bother you except yeah. for like mosquitoes and ticks and stuff. So like, all oh, the animals don't want to bother you, but it's still, there's still, still, there's just this, this feeling of like, you know, what, what if there's something out there we don't know about something? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's something in the jungle that that's very, very unsettling when you go to sleep alone at night. Um, so it took me a long time to get over that. And of course my biggest fear was that I was going to wake up and there was going to be, uh, uncontacted tribes, tribe guys standing around my tent, checking me out, which that was, humans are terrifying. Humans are the thing that I'm really scared of. Um, so yeah, the first few solos I went on, I was just terrified the whole time. Well, not the whole time, but at night for the most part, um, you know, fire helps. It, that's the thing. You get stripped down to like primal, you know, man you get stripped down to like our ancestors where it's like okay i'm scared it's dark you know every animal out here has a tapetum lucidum that allows them to see at night i can't see at night i'm scared you make a fire you feel better you make yourself a cup of coffee you feel a little better you get in your tent you know you're like all right i'm scared i'm gonna read something it'll take my mind off of this because if you just sit there you're gonna you're gonna go nuts but 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 then you know i'd say after i had done three or four weeks, uh, not all at the same time, but after I had done several different little solos and slept in the jungle for, you know, a few weeks on end, even at my research station, I just go out and sleep in the jungle by myself, you know, maybe, you know, 5k from the station or something. Um, and then, and then it, it sort of just, it sort of goes away. Yeah. One of the, one of the, one of the last solos I did in the Amazon, which was a couple of years ago now, um, I took a boat way up this river but I knew that there was like there was no tribes on this river, so I was like, okay, I'm safe. No one, no one with an arrow and a painted face is going to show up in the night. I was like, I'm good. I I rode my my pack raft down the river. I looked at wildlife at night. I made myself a fire and I fell asleep like a baby every night. And so like once you get over the weirdness of being away from from people, I think it's 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 wonderful and it's like pure freedom because like you can, you know just do whatever you want. I mean, I, I hated rules growing up and it's just like, it's not that there's, there's anything to do that you really can't do otherwise. It's just, it's just like, you're just free. I don't know. It's just, you're just on earth. And I like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it hardly compares, but when I was in the jungle, I think my, my most special and favorite times were the ones where I was on my own. I mean, you know, that was for what, half a day or maybe sometimes a day at a time, but those were definitely, definitely the best times. Um, I also wanted to ask very briefly, like, um, obviously you're in very good shape uh, in order to be able to do that as well physically. So what is it that keeps you in, in such good physical shape? Is it just living in the jungle, like, most of the time? Or, and, you know, what do you eat? Is there anything in particular, like, that helps you stay in such good shape? Or, you know, is being in the jungle on its own kind of work out enough? Uh, no, we, we do a lot of, uh, me and my friends and my wife and I, well, my, my wife and I are pretty, pretty athletic. She's, she's like, I think she's going to be a pro rock climber pretty soon. Um, so we, we rock climbing, hiking, um, but, and, and in the jungle, yeah, in the jungle, it's almost like, you know, you wake up and you walk a five mile research transect and then you walk five miles back and then you're, uh, there right there. You've done, you've done a ton of mileage for the day and then you're like, oh, I'm hot. So I got to go swimming and then you go swimming and it's like, this is the stuff that like John Muir and Thoreau were talking about that, like the wilderness just forges you. It just makes you into, um, 
something stronger, you know, like when, when I'm like, for instance, today I woke up and I responded to like 30 emails and then, you know, we're talking. And then after this, I'm like, I'm pretty hungry. I'm going to get something to eat, but I really haven't taken more than about 50 steps in my house today. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when I'm in the wilderness, uh, right now it's two o'clock in the afternoon for me here. I mean, I would have already walked, you know, 15 kilometers and swam and lifted a bunch of heavy stuff and siphoned gasoline and climbed a tree. And I mean, I would have, I would have done unbelievable, like run marathons by now where as of today, I haven't done anything, but so today I, uh, will probably try to get some, some, at least outdoor bouldering and some rock climbing. I got to get outside at some point mm. and then, and then I'll go for a run on a street because I, cause I have to, but yeah, I, I don't like, I don't like exercising for the point of exercising. Um, I like doing stuff. I like to throw a Frisbee. I like to go on a hike. I like to, you know, I'll go running with a dog. Dogs make running exciting for me. I, I running with people is kind of boring, but if you get a dog and run through the woods that I love. Oh man, I completely agree. There's nothing better than running with a dog. Yeah. 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 And, uh, the only thing, the only thing I will do is leading up to, uh, when we do our anaconda research, you're dealing with like 400 pound snakes that are just pure muscle. So I do try to, uh, I try to go to the gym a little bit. I really don't like it. So I do, I do body weight exercises. I do like push ups, sit ups, pull ups, um, that kind of stuff just to try and stay as strong as like, you know, I try and lift like heavy stuff just to stay strong. Cause you do have to work on that aspect of your of your physical fitness if you're going to work with anacondas because you you will get into situations where you need to have some strength behind you so mm. you don't want to be caught out of shape there but uh but yeah yeah i mean it's it's kind of it's kind of just like if you're out in the wild you're you're in shape i mean everyone I, from everyone i know that works outdoors is whether they're throwing bales of hay or you know uh just whatever they're just everyone that i know that works outdoors ends up being in shape because you got you got to walk everywhere Okay, I've got, um, I've just got like a few more questions. Is it all right if I just keep you for a little bit longer from your food and your, your bouldering? <laughs> sure. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so, uh, where do I want to go next? Um, so, uh, this is, uh, this is a slightly off the wall one, but, um, in, uh, in Mother great. of God, you, you write about, um, Percy Fawcett, one of the kind of, Mm-hmm. great explorers in your eyes and um you write at the start of the book about fearing that you've been born in an adventureless age um, and i think by the end of the book you've kind of created your own renaissance of adventure and exploration but um i wondered what um what do you want people to remember about paul rosley in say a hundred years time ha oh man it's a good question i um well there's a few things i just i want to I hope that something like Mother of God will be like, whether, right, so look, either people are going to, you know, really mess things up and really cut down too much rainforest and we're just going to, we're just going to be all partying while the world burns or we're going to, you know, things are going to be great and there's going to be tons of wilderness um, and tons of resources to go around. Whatever, whatever happens though, I just, I feel like, you know, guys like um, John Muir, and Teddy Roosevelt, who like, you know, back, back in the day, they were running through the American West and going, you know, you guys can't cut this stuff. You know, there are people who are saying you cannot cut the sequoia trees. These are trees the size of a house. Like if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have sequoia trees. And that's one of the most, one of the most amazing things in the natural world. Um, 
whaling, you know, humpback whales went from, I think, you know, a hundred and something thousand whales. I think it was like 130,000 globally. And then after the whaling thing, they were down to about 8,000 whales, which is practically nothing. Um, so they were going extinct. And if a bunch of people didn't get together and say, there is no way we can lose whales, you know, and they just, they banned whaling and they got everybody else to get behind whaling, you know, and of course the technology changed. We didn't need whale blubber as much, but, um, now humpback whales are doing great. We are in no danger of losing humpback whales. It's like, I think we were back up to about 80 something thousand humpback whales. That's great. And I think, um, really I, I would love to protect this river that I'm on. Um, and looking back, like I just, you know, I, I think if I'm an old man and I know that I did really hardcore adventures in some seriously wild places and got to, got to meet a few cool animals, you know, wrestle some anacondas and rock some giant anteaters to sleep. And, you know, major goal of mine for years and years and years, I said, I want to see a tiger in the wild and not in a Jeep on a tour, and not even. <laughs> Not even on elephant back, um, because, you know, on elephant back, even the old hunters from the Maharaja times, they said, you know, if you go on an elephant, you can walk through the jungle and, and eventually you'll, you know, it's, you'll, you'll see a tiger because it's just different, yeah. you know, but to be on your own two feet in the woods and see a deer in New York. I mean, sometimes I see a deer in the forest and it's just, I'm just like, my God, that thing is so beautiful. And I, I see deer every day, but the idea of seeing a tiger in the woods on your own two feet, you know, and sort of the real world with the, with no holds barred was just such a dream and like stuff like that. Like I just, I just, uh, you know, if I, if I can do some stuff like that and help protect these animals and places along the way, then that's, that's, that's good enough for me. I just want to, I just feel like I, animals have done so much for me and I love them so much that I have to, you know, that, that classic sort of Jane Goodall saying about like, give, give, you know, I have to be the voice of, the ones that don't have a voice and, and humans are such a dominating force um, that I definitely feel like, you know, I, I owe it to the, to, to my friends in the forest to, to try and protect them as much as possible. And whether that's, you know, actually doing conservation work or putting out books that inspire other people and add to sort of the public consciousness, I'll do whatever I can. And that's, uh, that's really it. And you say that um, you use the language of we're suffering from a generational amnesia to ecological abundance. So I suppose part of what you're trying to do is kind of remind us of something that we've we've lost or we're losing. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what I feel like. I feel like I've time traveled a little bit because when you you go out into those super wild places in the Amazon and you're like, oh, my God, every fish in the river. I mean, I just dip my hook in this river and there's you know, a six foot fish on my hook. You're like, this is crazy. And you're like, oh, it must be luck. And you're like, no, it's not luck. It's that when humans were small and nature was big, you know, and there were seals everywhere in New York and, and, and I mean, what San Francisco looked like, I mean, just all over the world, you hear these stories of, uh, you know, what it was like in the 1600s and the, in the 1500s and, you know, the size of lobsters, the the size of elephants, the size of moose. We've actually, you know, hunters will always give you this crap about how they're like, oh, we're hunting for conservation. <laughs> no, you're not. You know, a wolf goes after the 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 weakest member of, of the pack, of, of the of the herd of deer. So the wolf takes the straggler, takes the, the sick one, thereby improving the health of the prey. 
So the predator and prey work together, making everyone healthier and making everyone better. Humans, what we do is we say, well, that one has the biggest antlers. That one has the biggest tusks. So we kill that one. And what that does is over time, it genetically selects for smaller antlers, smaller tusks, smaller individuals. So we're we're taking the biggest, healthiest ones. That's what these hunters do. Um, and so like, you know, in so many ways through pollution, through development, through everything, um, the, the world's becoming more tame. You know, when I go for a walk in the woods later today, it's going to be, I can wrap my arms easily around every tree that I see, which is terrible. I mean, there should be 500 year old oak trees growing here, but they were all cut down before I was born. And I think that what we were talking about with the gener generational amnesia is that every generation you grow up, you open your eyes and you say, okay, well, this is what the world looks like. And then by the time you're an old man, you go, man, when I was a kid, we used to swim in that stream and now it's polluted. And there's, um, sorry, I just want to jump in because there's a great, um, have you read Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold? Yeah, I, I have a long time ago, but there's, I know what a classic it is. There's this great passage in it where him and a friend are soaring through the trunk of a tree. And maybe uh, you remember this, and every ring that they saw through, he remembers backwards the events that happened during that tree's lifetime, right back to uh -huh. the family who planted the original acorn. I think it's an oak tree. Um, yeah. And it's just this great sense, I mean, like so much of the book, you know, the cranes standing on the pages of their own history and stuff. There's, there's just this great sense of connection to history that um, he evokes that at the time that he's writing, he also feels is being lost. Yeah, and the, and that's and that is exactly it. Is that someone like him who wrote that a few decades ago now? Um, it's the thing. Each generation, they you, they only have their own lifetime really as a reference point, you know. And, and so when we're, when we are old, we'll say, "Oh man, when we were young. We saw this and that." And for the most part, it gets worse. And that's a very dangerous thing because people aren't horrified by what they see. You know, most of my friends, we go out into the woods and you're like, oh, this is nice woods. But if you bring them to old growth woods, they'll be like, oh, my God, these woods are amazing. Look how cool this is. And it's like, yeah, because you don't have the reference point to to realize that what you're what you're in. You know, why can't you swim in that river? Like people swimming. There's nothing better than swimming in a river like that's that's real wealth. Um, so. So, yeah, the general generational amnesia thing is a, is a terrifying thing that needs to be sort of now is much more. Um, addressable, I guess, because we have so many people thinking about this and wanting to preserve things. But uh, the cool flip side of that, though, now is that in a lot of places, things are changing for the better. You know, it seems like, you know, in the US in the 70s, we had bald eagles were going extinct and our rivers are so polluted, they were catching fire. And that's around the time that Rachel Carson wrote the book, The Silent Spring. And it was like the environmental movement, the Endangered Species Act came out and things were terrible then. Wolves were gone from this country. Now, like, wolves have been reintroduced. Bald eagles are doing well. Our rivers are much cleaner. Whales are coming back towards New York City. It's like, things can get better. I know that I just read an article that in uh, outside of Rome, wolves are back for the first yeah, time in, yeah. like, 500 years. Like, that's great. Yeah. And, like, I think that's a lot of what we're going to start seeing soon is that in some areas, not, like, Africa and, and Asia yet, but, you know, things are going to boom and then they're going to, in terms of humans and then people are going to realize like, Oh my God, like we, this stuff isn't just pretty or nice or romantic. It's like, we need this stuff. This is what keeps us alive. Cool. Um,
So just to kind of just to kind of wrap it up, just a couple more quick questions. First, what yeah. are you excited for in the next, say, six months? Uh, uh, <laughs> personally, or like, or like, I guess personally, and also like, I, I don't know what's going what's going on down at Las Piedras at the moment. What's what's happening yeah. there? What's yeah. going to be happening there? It sounds like you've got a book coming out at some point soon as well. Well, yeah, I I uh, I did. Um, you know what I did was. Well, yeah. All right. So in the next six months, basically, I'm finishing up that book and heading back to the Amazon. And in the Amazon, we're going to be running our biggest anaconda season yet, which is we're trying to use the anaconda as an apex predator to learn about how pollutants are entering the Amazon. And so you have these illegal gold miners and mercury is entering the river systems. And as the apex predator, you know, it goes into the fish, it goes into the birds, it goes into the crocs moves its way up, it gets to the anaconda. Um, and so, we're, you know, the thing is, no one wants to study anacondas because they live in the swamps, they have a lot of teeth, they're big and scary, you have to be wet and, and in dangerous situations to find them, and you can't tranquilize them from a distance and then safely go pick up like a sleeping one. You have to jump on them and fight them to get them to, you know, submit. So studying anacondas is cool because it hasn't been done in our area. We're learning things that no one knows about these giant snakes, um, you know, because they, they kind of get brushed to the side. Everyone thinks of like jaguars and great white sharks. And it's like, well, yeah, an anaconda is a 20, you know, six meter snake, seven meter snake easily. And uh, they're they're as big as anything else in the Amazon. So we're learning, going to be learning a lot about these. And uh, we have some exciting sort of hopes of making making getting some of this on film and, and telling people about it. And so for me, yeah, it's, it's, we got the Amazon season coming. And then of course I'm running a bunch of, a bunch of trips. I'm going to have a few different organizations coming down and it's always fun to meet, meet new people and show them the forest. I love when you get people in the jungle for the first time and they look up and they see the trees and they just like absolutely lose it. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a good Amazon season. And then uh, the next book that's coming out though is actually about, is actually uh, more focused on elephants and tigers in India. So I've been I've been doing a lot of work with with that, and uh, couldn't possibly be more excited than getting out another book. So yeah, my fingers are crossed and my eyes are on the horizon for all that stuff. Okay, that's really exciting. Um, okay, well, just to finish up, I guess is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or anything that I haven't asked? And then also, do you have any recommendations for other people who I should talk to? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess... Um, what else? I mean, things just like... I think just like what you are doing... I just love that what you're doing right now is focusing on students, you know, and like like looking towards like that, that sort of work we've kind of been skirting around it the whole concert, the whole conversation, but, um, kids, you know what I mean? Like kids yeah. hearing from us, you know, what we're seeing gives them that reference point, gives them not only of like ecologically what our state status is, but it's also like, you know, well, these, these guys are really motivated and seem happy and engaged, you know, being out there in the natural world. It's like, all right, well, well I can do that too. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's more, uh, little Pauls and Matt's out there like that are trying to trying to do this stuff or get are going to, they're going to want to be doing this stuff. So, uh, I definitely think it's, it's hugely important. Um, so kudos to that because, because, uh, I'd, I'd actually love to work with kids more. It's just, it's hard to 
get kids in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I definitely think uh, you're doing good stuff, man. Thanks. But um, in, ter- in terms of who else, I I'd, I'd definitely I'd have to think, man. I don't know. There's, there's, there's so many people that I feel like I'd be overwhelmed, but there's just there's so many people doing great work uh, today. But uh, yeah, I think I think for that one, I think I'll, may, I'll just make a list and send it to you. Uh, yeah, that'd be cool. This uh, this software is good because it opens up kind of you know a whole new world of people to talk to, which is really exciting. And it's been great to great to be able to speak to you and do something internationally. And it seems like the technology's held it held it together for it, which is great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently trying to I'm currently trying to set up a conversation with um, Alan Rabinovitz, which uh-huh. I'd be really excited about. And um, I think. Similar to your story in a lot of ways, you know, uh, struggled with stammering as a kid and then has gone on to set up incredible big cat stuff. Um, yeah, no, Rabinowitz, is, he's like a heavyweight, man. He's he's the real deal. I'd love to uh, – I've only ever spoken to him like over uh, over like email and technology. I've never met the guy, but he's he's pretty – pretty cool i think he i think he said he he established the biggest tiger reserve in the world and he also established the first jaguar reserve like he's just unstoppable man yeah he's also had cancer for like the last 10 years and he's still out there in the jungle doing all this stuff so yeah there's a really interesting interview with him on the on being podcast um which you can check out it's really cool um but yeah, if you if you have other suggestions for people, then then send me a list through. I'd really appreciate that because I'm sure you'll come up with some great names. Yeah, 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 for sure. Cool. All right. Thanks very much, Paul. Muchas gracias. All right. Well, thank you, man. And uh, as always, keep in touch. And you know, maybe we'll we'll see each other underneath a, a K-pop tree at some point. <laughs> That'd be really nice. And I can't wait to I can't wait to read the next book. I'm really excited for thank, that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll send you a link to this when I've uh, when I've edited and published it. Perfect, man. I'll share it around then. Cool. Have a good afternoon, yeah? All right. Thanks, man. Take Take care. care. Bye.